0: Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital for the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Let's go ahead and look at Ephesians 6. We're going to be in Ephesians 6 this morning. We're going to start our reading at verse 10. Uh, We we dealt with verses 10 through 13 two weeks ago. Our main topic today, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get into that in a moment here, but we're going to kind of lead in and get an idea of where we're at. Last time we worked through this, and Paul exhorted us to be strengthened in the power of God, to put on the whole armor of God, and to both withstand and to stand firm, if you remember. So I'm going to start back there and kind of work our way into this, and we'll go from 10 to 17. So Ephesians 6, 10, this is God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let's take a moment and pray together. Our precious Savior, together we proclaim, may God be praised. Blessed are you forever. And so, Lord, as we begin our time in the Word, we we join in a simple prayer of humility and need. Lord, having confessed our sin, having assurance that you have given us grace, Lord, we ask for more grace. Please speak to us through your Word. Use this time for the edification of the saints and for your glory. Would you, the God of endurance and encouragement, grant us to live in such harmony with one another in in accord with Christ Jesus, that together we would with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with great anticipation and happiness, we look to you to feed us this morning. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As a boy, if someone had asked me to make a picture of what a soldier looked like, if I was to draw it out and maybe color it in, uh, it would have looked something like this. It probably would have started with some sort of a helmet on top, maybe some night vision goggles, but then probably a chin strap, probably down to some sort of a, a jacket or a uniform with a big belt around it. Um, they'd be having like different cartridges on the belt. Uh, there'd probably be some sort of gun that had a bayonet on the end definitely have long, big, clunky boots that could withstand anything, maybe some of those leather gaiters that came all the way up to your knee. This guy would be decked out in preparation for the battle. Uh, I thought, you know, that everyone in the army wore a helmet and shot a gun and was, was always on the watch for the enemy at nonstop. Uh, I thought that anyone that was in the Navy sailed on a ship and knew how to fire cannons and swab the decks, you know. I thought that anyone that's in the Air Force flew a plane or a jet or a helicopter and practiced dropping bombs and how to do like dogfights in midair and how to use a parachute. Um, but much to my disappointment, as I grew up a little bit more. I realized that the Army and the Air Force, the Navy and the Marines are, uh, have become more and more sophisticated, and the weapons and defenses that are used uh, are not as simple as what I would draw in that picture growing up. Um, we realize that the, the sophistication that surrounds us are meant to, though, be safety for us. Well, that doesn't mean that we don't have weapons or defenses. That means that they've changed. In fact, our weapons, we know, and our defenses have become far more powerful and accurate as we've progressed. Our defense mechanisms have become more intelligent and safer over the years. Things have gotten to a place where we really, really almost do anything to save lives of our servicemen and women as we consider these different defenses and our weapons. And most of us understand that our military succeeds based on preparations and readiness and defense and tactics and weapons and leadership so that we will be able to protect and defend and stand against the enemy or any attacks that would threaten our country. So even as a child, even if I went around this morning and talked to the children, they would mostly all understand that a sailor or a soldier or a marine needs to have the proper protection so that they won't be harmed by the enemy. It would be foolish to just go into that not having anything. There were no preparations. Obviously, the, this, this, maybe this gear is not the only way. There's a lot more things that had to be prepared for, but it would be very important to us to enter the combat then without proper equipment, without the right gear, we would open ourselves up to destruction and potentially defeat. We are going to get hurt. This is true of the church, too. Um, If we don't realize that we're in the battle, we talked about this the last time we were together, if we didn't realize we're in the battle, we'll never treat our Christian obedience seriously. But more than that, we're going to learn here today, if we don't realize that we've been outfitted for this battle, we will try to do it on our own strength, We will fret and struggle and figure out any way that we possibly can to defeat the enemy in the midst of this battle. Today I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to preach an introduction to this section on the armor of God. It'll be a little bit pastoral and I'll be trying to be thoughtful about our approach to this section. It's going to remind us what we've actually learned in the book of Ephesians. and My goal is to help us see these verses from the right perspective Uh, I've been preparing to cover all of this today, um, but I realized that this approach was going to be overwhelming if I put this together with all the stuff that we're going to study in this section. And so just this morning, I want to kind of help us think through this approach, this right perspective. Because if you're like me, when you get to the the commands that give one after another after another after another, I just so easily slide into thinking, okay, these are all the things, my to-do list that I need to get done. And I'll get these things done and I must be, at least in some way, obedient and a Christian. This is the right thing. is kind of giving me success in some way. So what I'm going to try to do is help us as we come back to this text and look at it from the right perspective, the one that Paul is actually giving to us. My goal is to help us then in this way. Paul has told us last time that we were in the midst, we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. He has told us that we are supposed to stand firm in this warfare. For some of us, when we first hear this, uh, if we're we're honest with ourselves, it's a little bit of a rude awakening compared to the way that we live. What I mean is some of us can tend to think that our conversion is the sum total of God's salvific and grace-filled work in our lives and that we kind of just live it out from there. That was the part that was so different from everything else. But Paul shows us that that's not actually the truth. Our conversion was only a starting point for us as we realize what God has been doing in us since eternity past in Christ. Paul is saying that Christians are under attack. They are in the midst of the battle, whether we know it or not. And he's trying to make sure we know it. And remember then what he's doing in the whole book of Ephesians. He continually pulls back the curtain and shows us what's happening in ultimate reality. What's going on in the heavenly places. As Christians, uh, we're not called to a one-time faith. converge in our salvation and the rest of that just kind of rolls downhill and once we're set we're set and someday we end up in heaven. No not at all and and we do actually know this but sometimes we think this way as if we're to believe for our salvation but then that's kind of the end and it kind of goes from there. Paul is showing us that as Christians we have been introduced to what is really going on around us. We have been shown what we cannot see with our physical eyes Paul has revealed to us what is going on in the heavenly places. He's kind of doing this, he's kind of shaking us awake out of our sinful sleep of ignorance and awake to the treacherous journey that we have now embarked on. It's a dangerous world in which the evil forces would love to see us discouraged and handicapped and even destroyed if possible. Before we have trusted Christ, we we couldn't see this thing though. Neither did we believe that it was true. So much of our world, as it stands, does not believe in the supernatural, And so we say, "We've figured this out, flesh and blood, what's going on around here, science, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and we can figure this whole thing out. But Paul tells us something different. Now that we have trusted in Christ, he is going to reveal to us, show to us that we're not just wrestling against ourselves or flesh and blood around us. He, the God of, of, of our heaven, he has graciously saved us, but now he introduces us to the truth, to the reality that we are being attacked by the evil one. Our need to trust God was not only necessary then at our conversion, when we realized our sin, repented of it, and trusted the Lord as our Savior King. But Paul is showing us that we must trust God as we engage in the business of Christian obedience, aka spiritual warfare. He is saying that living as a Christian in Christ's body will be met with the full fury of hell. That's serious. And some of us don't know it. We don't see it. We don't recognize it. Some of us have fallen back into our old sleepy ways of ignorance, into thinking that if we just kind of have the right doctrine and if we, you know, God will kind of work it all out for us and eventually we'll end up in heaven. But he is explicit over and over again in his epistles that that's not the truth and that's definitely not right doctrine. He is going to show us that we must as a Christian within the body of Christ walk wisely in the truth. It may even be that the true the truth that we wonder sometimes why we're struggling with defeat and anger and anxiety and depression and lust and pride. And some of us are ignorant to the fact that we are being pierced and bruised and clubbed and poisoned and burned by the enemy. But remember this: a Christian isn't one who doesn't struggle with these things, anger, anxiety, depression, lust, pride. A Christian is one who knows why they struggle with these things and knows how to properly respond. We understand this and we think the, this way sometimes, but I just want us to help us think in the right way, not in the wrong way and way so we can easily slide into. I don't think that I'm the only one that struggles though with thinking the wrong way about my Christian position. What I mean is I think many of us easily forget that when Jesus left, he left us with a commission. You remember it from Matthew 28, but usually we kind of only think about it when we're talking about missions. This is what he left us with. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Does that not sound like what he's been talking about in Ephesians, even this idea, all of heaven, all the authority placed on Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. If you'll notice, this is not a promotion of getting saved and staying inside the walls of our church building for the rest of our lives. That's not what he says at all. But rather, it's a declaration that God has given Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth It's a call to making disciples out of those who are currently in bondage, those under the oppression of these cosmic forces of evil. This is a call to rescue those who've been taken away, who are being taken away to death, to teach believers all that Jesus has commanded us and to know that Jesus himself through his Holy Spirit is with us, his church. That's what Paul is doing here. He is showing us that we are embroiled in spiritual warfare And he's showing us how to properly respond as a body of believers, as his church. So here in these verses, Paul is simply telling us what it looks like for Christians to properly stand against the schemes of the devil. God has not left us exposed. He has given us all that we need to stand in this evil day. Therefore, Paul encourages us that there is armor for this battle. Think about it this way. He has told us what to do. This passage, I'm going to go back through here. He's told us what to do. He's told us why we are to do it. And he's also told us how to do it. Let me, let me explain. In this passage, he's told us what we are to do. Stand. In verse 11, 13, and 14, Paul calls us to stand against the schemes of the devil, to withstand in the evil day, to stand firm. And then in our text in verse 14, the governing command is, stand therefore. That's his point. That's what we are to be doing. What we are to do, Stand. But he's also told us why we need to do this. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces. So he's told us why we need to stand. It's much bigger than our own struggles with our own selves and the people around us. But he's also told us how to do it. How do we stand firm? Only by being strengthened in the Lord and by putting on the armor of God. Now, we talked briefly last time about being strong in the Lord, or uh, really being strengthened by the Lord. We saw the importance of trusting God for the power to live as a body of Christ that he has called us to be. But up to this point, he hasn't given us much information about this thing that he called us to, to put on the armor of God. We believe him, I mean, we need this armor, but what does he exactly mean by it? I mean, is there a spiritual closet that we kind of go in and pick out the stuff and then load up? Or is there some kind of way that we're supposed to go through the Bible and find out all the different things that are listed here and then get ready for when we struggle, we can kind of throw these verses out? Is that the, is that the idea that's going on here? We, we hear this exhortation, and as Christians, we want to respond in belief and obedience. And it's right, but we, we still are kind of asking ourselves, what do you mean, Paul, by this armor of God? This is the subject Paul serves up this week, and next week as we come back to it. Paul isn't willing for the church to be in the midst of the battle, unaware of all that God is, and therefore all that God has given for us for our protection as we stand. He's going to talk about truth, righteousness, readiness of the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. Now obviously that's just a summary that I gave you right there. It's not half as eloquent or as interesting as Paul's explanation, but it actually gets to the core of what he's talking about, truth, righteousness, readiness of the gospel of peace, salvation, and the word of God, and faith as well. Paul is going to describe the weapons of our warfare by dressing the body of Christ with the whole armor of God. Paul is using a metaphor here, right? We understand this. He's using a metaphor to help us understand that's based actually on a Roman soldier. If you remember, this is one of the captivity epistles. This is when he is writing from prison probably being guarded by one or several of these Roman soldiers. So he can see right in front of him someone who's decked out in all this different gear. And he uses this metaphor to show us that the church is not left to fend off the evil one on its own, but it has been dressed in the armor of God. God has given her all that she needs as his bride to stand in the evil day. So I want to consider some of the difficulties ahead of us here. But before I jump into that, let's let's look at verse 14, and I I think I'm going to be able to illustrate it right away, one of the things that we struggle with. Let me just read verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the first part, when we first get this, it's, it's, it's literally translated, having wrapped your waist in the truth. This is a good translation, having wrapped your waist in the truth. Now, right away, we ask the question, okay, what does it mean to wrap myself with the truth? And wh- what is he talking about when he's talking about my waist? Or we might ask about the breastplate of righteousness, like what is, the, the, what is it guarding, like the breast or the heart, or what's happening here? What, what's, what's so, what, what are you trying to get to? What is Paul trying to say about our waist? Or what is Paul trying to say about the action of wrapping around? Before we start into this, we need to understand that each one of these actions, each time Paul talks about applying some piece of armor, he isn't necessarily making a big deal of every little piece of the metaphor here. This is important, this is how language works, because otherwise we can very easily take this too far in a place that he may not have actually tried to do it at all. And I understand, because I'll be the first to say, I've sat under messages where each and every part of this metaphor have been broken down and turned into an important way for us to understand the exact nature of this command. And, and that can be helpful in some ways, but I'm just not convinced in this study that that's what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to show us how to put on the armor of God and what he means specifically by that. He's using this metaphor to show us what Christian obedience looks like. So, For instance, I don't think that Paul is trying to reference our waist as some sort of specific area of our spiritual life or that he's talking specifically about our feet in one specific way or that we're talking about our heart in one specific way of our spiritual lives. Now, that would be tempting, and, and we understand how it's kind of nice to kind of join those things up, and the truth is, I'll be honest, as a preacher, it preaches. It's nice to kind of work it out, and it sounds really clever and get all these different pieces together. I want to make sure that we don't ride this analogy till it dies, though, We need to understand what he is trying to draw our attention to. We need to allow Paul to use this metaphor to get his bigger point across without spiritualizing every single word and part of the metaphor. The only way we're gonna do that is to be able to look at the whole armor. So this is really daunting to me, and this is one of the reasons I realized to look through all of this and to give us a proper foray into this subject was gonna be too much information in one sermon. It's gonna be tough, because usually it's, we get to these different commands and we kind of grasp onto them and then we grasp onto the next one and we grasp onto the next one and it's very simple for us to kind of preach that as though this good Christian moral behavior is what keep us from the traps. And very easily our confidence shifts, right? We want to make sure that we understand this is the armor of God. With that being said, Let me go ahead and I'm going to read all of verse 14 through 17, the whole thing, and then we're going to come back and make some observations together. So here we go. Verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is... The word of God. Now, so before we get too far into this, we've got to see that the main verb is at the beginning. It is the one that's the imperative. Stand, therefore. This is the point. Stand. You and I, and we are told that from 11 and 13 and now 14, stand. All the rest of verses 14 through 17 help us understand what comes with this idea of standing. All of this explanation about the armor is only that. It's it's an explanation to help us understand what he's referring to. It's something that God has given to us in himself and therefore something that we're to put on. So I've got three main points that I want to cover today and then we'll be done as far as introduction. Three main points to be, I hopefully will be helpful for us as we consider the whole armor of God. Number one, this armor is already ours and if we are in Christ, we are clothed in it. I'll say that again. This armor is already our, ours, and if we are in Christ, we are clothed in it. Hear me out for a minute. This armor is not auxiliary armor, it's like an add-on, an extra um, that you know we get a chance when we uh, get into this warfare that we get to use the, some of the stuff that uh, the, some of the stuff that's kind of like what our father uses as well. Sometimes I think that we think Paul is telling us. About a little kid's set of armor that's kind of like the armor that our dad has. I mean, you've seen this kind of stuff in real life, right? You know, the moms, at least my experience, the moms love this stuff. Like the dad wears this specific outfit, and then there's like a little kid's one. It's so cute. It's got it's just like small. I can't believe it. look at these little gloves. They're tiny, they're work gloves. Like I, okay, so I'm a I'm a I'm a duck hunter or a waterfowler, and um uh, I, at least I, I try to be, and when I go out to shoot ducks or geese, and usually, the, the, as the name implies, it's usually near the water, and one of the things is when I'm setting out decoys or maybe when I'm retrieving geese or ducks, I'm in the water in some way, and usually boots aren't quite enough. Usually it's up past that, so I wear chest waders. They're, if you don't know what they are, they're like giant boots that come all the way up to my chest with straps that go over, ne- over top of my shoulders. While well, I was looking at Cabela's, their ad- and of course they have all these different chest waiters, but like at the bottom, there's two of these sets of children's chest waiters. So yeah, I know, like there's little boots with the little neoprene patched knees and these little straps that go over top. The kid's gonna grow out of it in a year easily. And even if he doesn't, he can only get in like a foot and a half of water. What, what good is it? But it's just like so special. And like, we're like, oh, it's so cute. Yeah, I'll spend a hundred dollars on that. You know, like no problem for us. I think sometimes that's how we think about this set of armor, as if somehow God has been slaving away in his blacksmith shop, making all these little pieces for everybody, custom fit for everyone to have this. They've got all these things, and and we understand, though, that, that, that that's somehow how we think about it. But this isn't the right way to think about this armor. Notice that this is called the armor of God. He doesn't mean that this is the armor made by God. He doesn't say that at all here. He means that this is God's gracious, steadfast love that he has given us himself. And that when we get him, we get all that he is. Now that may seem like a little bit of an offshoot, but let me kind of work with this. Paul isn't telling us something that we've never heard before. This isn't new, isn't brand new. It's true that Paul is going to use the metaphor based on this Roman soldier But this isn't something Paul thought up and then used this metaphor to make it work. Paul is drawing from a much more ancient resource, something that he probably learned as a boy when he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Let me read for us from Isaiah 59 because we're going to get an idea of how God deals with injustice and oppression. When truth is lacking and the people transgress the law, his people have failed to obey in 59 and something must be done. In a sense, God turns to himself, as it were, to kind of be the one who offers salvation for the people. Listen to verses 15 through 17. He says, "'Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil "'makes himself a prey. "'The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, "'that there was no justice. "'He saw that there was no man "'and wondered that there is no one to intercede. "'Then his own arm brought him salvation.' and his righteousness upheld him. Now here we go, listen to this part. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And that's not the only place that Isaiah talks about stuff like this. When Isaiah describes the Messiah in chapter 11, the shoot that came from the stump of Jesse, if you remember this, the one that said that the Spirit of the Lord was on him, the one that delights in the fear of the Lord, the one that judges righteously and kills the wicked. He's described as one who dresses a certain way. Let me read Isaiah 11.5. He says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. That idea of faithfulness is that idea of integrity or truth. You start to sound familiar here? I know it's not one-to-one, but we're starting to realize that Isaiah shows that God is dressed in these attributes. I'll go one more passage in Isaiah uh, that you'll probably recognize. In Ephesians 6, 15, Paul talks about the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. Kind of a strange one, but like, okay, let's see. Isaiah 52, 7. Let me read it. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So as we just take a quick survey of some of these in Isaiah, as we hear all these verses, we start to understand that Paul is not speaking about some sort of extemporaneous armor that kind of looks like what our Father has. He is talking about God's armor, divine armor, his characteristics, his actions, his attributes, and how these are a massive protection against evil. Putting on this armor comes from being found in God? Or, as Paul has told us, you guys know the answer, as we are found in Christ. This makes sense, though, right? If, if you remember, Paul told us that we needed to put on the new self, the new man, that we were supposed to be renewed in the spirits of our minds. Listen to a few little snippets from Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And then he describes this kind of living. Then in verse 20, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is who we are. Remember, this is him looking back at chapters one through three. I know I've probably beat this to death. One through three, this is who you are. Chapters four through six, go be who you are. That's what he is saying here. He's helping us understand we're created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness in Christ. This is true. Our justification is sure. We have Christ's righteousness. We have Christ's holiness, Christ's power. So the first thing here that we we need to notice is this armor is actually a result of being found in Christ. It is divine armor. It is part and parcel of his gracious gift of himself to us. It is ours, and if we are in Christ, we have been clothed in this armor. So that's the first thing. Now let's go to the second thing. Number two, this armor isn't made for individuals. Not really. It's not quite right to think about it in this way. Rather, this is the armor of God that is made for the body of Christ. As each of us is connected to him individually, we are connected to the rest of the people, of his people, the church. We celebrate this fact and truth when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and understand that we look to God and we look to one another that our union with each other is based on our union with Christ, that he has made us his body together. In our connection to him, we find that he has blessed the whole with the gift of himself, and as it follows then, also the gift of his protection. It's important to see this armor in light of all that Paul has been saying in Ephesians, because when we do so, we realize there's a unity in the body that he promotes. There's this fellowship of believers in our dependence on Christ together, we realize that he is talking to all of us. We are together in this battle. And together, Christ's church will be able to stand. Paul isn't only giving us good tips to fight in these individual battles. Like This is really important for us to think about. It's certainly true that we will face battles alone. But we need to make sure that we push back against the wrong idea of Lone Ranger Christianity that somehow I put this stuff on and this is my battle to win or lose. No, we are part of the body of Christ. And as such, we recognize that he clothes his body for her protection. So that's the first thing. Together, the true Christian church makes disciples then, fends off the attacks of the evil one, and ever moving toward the commission that he's given us to make disciples and be disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, the great captain. So the last thing that I want to point out here We need to see that each of these pieces of armor must be appropriated by faith by the body of Christ. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I'll say it again. We need to see that each of these pieces of armor that we're going through must be appropriated by faith by the body of Christ. This is the problem. Whenever we hear, especially that first point I made, right, that when we are in Christ, that we have this armor, that it's ours, that we're clothed, that we're like, oh, my identity is set. I'm good to go we so easily slide into the Romans 6 problem, right? What I mean by that is, you remember at the beginning, he basically is like, maybe it's okay to continue that grace may abound, right? Or maybe, you know, since you know, we're not under the law, but under grace, maybe it doesn't matter exactly how I live. Maybe that's the answer, right? I mean, Paul so clearly throughout all of his writing says, no, may it never be. You are not a slave to your old master. You are a slave of Christ, one who has made you new. What we learned then about the armor being a gracious gift of God, my first point there, that, we've already, that we already have this, does not mean that we do nothing in response. Not at all. I want to go back to our passage in Ephesians 4 and just think about that again for a moment. Notice that this identity shift that we talked about is something that we join in with effort and obedience in faith. Verse 23 says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This is not some sort of a downloading. Like we, we plug into this thing, we get all the Christian stuff done and we're good and we have nothing else to do. No, 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 this is a process. That's why Paul uses the analogy of walking. We walk wisely. We don't walk like the Gentiles. We walk in the light. This is a process of faith and obedience. Each one of these pieces in verses 14 through 17 in chapter six, they have some sort of a a, a thing to do. Put on, take up, fasten, bind on. Uh, There are actually five different verbs that he uses. But he isn't describing the Christians as somehow standing over here and someone putting it on them. Very interesting, he says put these things on which I understand to say this is an appropriation or a taking on these things together and being like our Father who has these attributes. He or she must hear Paul's words, trust God that these things are theirs in Christ, and live out their lives with the goal that their lives would display these attributes. In other words, that we would look like God. This is what he calls us to. It takes thoughtfulness. It takes study. It takes practice, it takes failure and repentance. And I'll just highlight again, it takes faith for us to step out and trust God. I mean this really kind of brings us back to verse 10, right? Remember what verse 10 was all about? Paul told us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We talked heavily about this maybe a few weeks ago that each of us is both to trust God and to move forward in obedience simultaneously. That this is what the walk looks like. The obedience that trusts God and walks forward doing what he has called us to do. And I'll admit, in the midst of this, I've, I've kind of wondering, because of my own walk with Christ, I wondered, is it possible then for a Christian to be uncovered and open to the attacks of the evil one? You know, if we really are covered in Christ's righteousness and how this works out, and what about our experience? And according to both the word and our own experience, I think the answer has to be yes. We do experience these attacks. We do experience these times where we're pierced or clobbered or hurt. We understand that we are living here now and understand that we have some sort of experience that tells us, yeah, but if we are true Christians, the Lord Jesus will not allow this person to continue on this path. Those that are truly his will love him and will desire to look like him and will trust him to make them more like Jesus. And we recognize that some of us, you know, some of us know exactly what I'm talking about because we know the darkness that we've been in, whether it's our own choices or the struggles that I've made from a series of slow, blinding choices out that we are not godly people and honoring him. And we understand. Some of us have experienced the active hand of God's chastening, while others of us have just actually experienced the natural consequences of our choosing sin. When we understand these things, when we return to the old master, Paul talks about this, if you remember, also in, in Romans 8, the idea that we're putting to death the deeds of the body, the things that we used to love to do. For some reason, we love to go back to those things. Some of us experience our own rebellion against God Mixed with the attacks of the evil one who just doesn't give up, it seems like. Resulting in hopelessness and our sense of, uh, God, why? What do I do? I need you. I must have you. You must clean me. And I can only look to you for true restoration. Ultimately, though, we trust that the one who alone can provide the protection we need against the evil one is Jesus himself. We trust him and him alone. And here Paul gives us, in this section, a wonderful exposition on the different parts of the Christian life that we need to tend to. He kind of gives us these six areas to say, hey, this is what it looks like to be found in Christ. He's about to give us the whole armor of God, and he desires that each of us would trust God and walk according to our true identity in him. So as we approach this armor of God next week, we're going to rightly be encouraged to holy living. We're not getting out of that at all. Again, he has saved us to be like his son. And we're going to see that this is a defense against the evil one. But as we do so, we need to make sure that we aren't thinking of these things in the wrong way. So, again, let me just hit those three ideas that I want us to go into this with next week. Number one, the armor is already ours. And if we're in Christ, we are clothed in it. Number two, This armor protects us as a whole and does not promote some sort of Lone Ranger Christianity. And number three, that each of these pieces of armor must be appropriated by faith. In other words, we must be ready to understand God's armor and then act like him by his strength through faith. This is the call to us today. And it shouldn't surprise us that it looks a lot like how we understand the workings out of the gospel as well. For a moment here, I'm just going to explain the gospel. There's four parts, that's kind of how I outline it. God, man, Christ, and faith, a response. God, the creator, makes everything and everyone, and all things are accountable to him. But man has rebelled against God and done exactly what he wants to. But because he is God, he must crush wickedness. This leaves us at a terrible spot, completely against God. And we understand that we are completely lost and deserve all judgment. But there's good news. There's hope. This is why the gospel is called good news. Because God sent Jesus Christ to take the penalty for your and my sin, the great atoning work of Christ on the cross. And in that great exchange, he took our sin and the Father crushed him. He punished Jesus in our stead. And what we get from this, those that would trust him, I'll get that in a minute, those that would trust him will receive his righteousness and will not be judged for what we totally deserve. But that leaves us at this point where we look to the Savior King who has done this. And if we understand the truth, we are met with a decision. Will you trust him as Savior King? Total commitment, or will you do it your own way? If we will do it our own way, there is no salvation. We sh- the scriptures are clear that this is true. There is no salvation apart from faith in Christ. Now, the same is true for us in our Christian walks, believers, brothers and sisters. We don't start by the word of the gospel and by the spirit and now continue on in the flesh. We have to continue on in Christ by faith in him. For the Christian walking day in and day out, we understand and believe that the evil one is against us. There's a big problem here. And he's out for our destruction and desires to cause us harm. But in Christ, God has stepped in and supplied all the grace that we need for our salvation and for our Christian living. He hasn't just done so for individuals to be Christians who live alone. Just this morning declares that to be true. As we look around and hear others say, yes, yes, Jesus is Lord. We understand in the gospel that he makes many one in Jesus Christ. But scripture is clear that salvation and Christian living is never done outside of faith. As we approach our Christian obedience then, we understand that we may do so by faith in him and obedience as we walk forward in his commands. So I'll encourage us today with this. Glory in the gift of the armor of God in himself, in his protection, and let us then obey him as we walk forward in faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your great gift of yourself. We thank you for being the one who bears the sword, the one who is strong, the one who has the breastplate of righteousness, the one who seems to gird his waist with truth and faithfulness. Lord, without you, there is no hope. Next week, we'll we'll see that this looks like us ethically and morally trying to follow and obey in these ways, but we understand that it is your armor. We are thankful for this truth, and we ask, Lord, that you would be strong to work in us. Would you protect us from the spiritual warfare that we're going into this week, this moment, this afternoon? I pray that we would trust you. Teach us, Lord, to trust you and to move forward in obedience in these ways. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for this body of believers that you have brought together. Lord, lastly, I pray for those who are at home who are without this body in a certain way and they need, Lord, your grace. I pray that you would give them special grace in a way that they would know the love of God, the height and depth and the width and the length Lord, the unsurpassable knowledge, Lord, the the, the greatness of who you are, and I pray that you would please work in them to know the love of God. We thank you for your love, and we depend on you completely in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.